How many of you were raised in the, taught in your Christian faith that you were to be witnesses for Christ? Let me see the hands. That's a term that's familiar to you. You're to be witnesses for Christ. The, um, it's interesting over the years how that, how that term has been defined. Um, for a long period of time in the 70s, late 60s and 70s and 80s, we conceived of it in terms of four spiritual laws. How many of you remember that? as an approach, right? We tried to kind of whittle it down to give you the right words to say on a spur of the moment, how to respond to someone. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be a witness to the living God. That is a term that we find all throughout the Bible, and uh, I think we're going to have fun with it. We are in the middle of a story, uh, middle of a series, the story we find ourselves in. Uh, We invited you as a congregation into the discussion that the leadership and elders and staff have been having all last fall. So we've been exploring where do we as a church fit in this grand story. Uh, the idea that if we, if we can locate ourselves in the story, then we have a good sense of what we're supposed to be doing and what God is all about in our lives. So we started with what makes Christians Christian. We believe in the one true living God. Remember that in the very beginning? We, uh, we, we hold uh, unswervingly to that, that our God is the only true God and he is alive very involved in our lives. And then we went from there to being caretakers of creation, that that's a central part of our belief system from the very beginning. God created this wonderful place out here. Uh, By the way, I'm beginning to understand why they uh, had so many questions about snow in the interview process. Um, I mentioned that last week, but it was nothing compared to this week. And uh, snow just keeps kind of getting higher and higher. It's not like in Denver where it just goes away. It just keeps piling up, doesn't it? I'm running out of space on my deck to throw the snow off because there's no space for that, but we'll figure that out. This is a wonderful creation that God has given us. Every day I wake up, I am grateful to the Lord for where I live and what I get to see, what I get to enjoy and experience, and so we should take care of it. We are caretakers of creation. That's one of the tasks that he gave us. Then we went from there to being a blessing to the nations, that he has blessed us so that we can bless those around us. (coughs) And uh, we go all the way back to uh, Abraham when he said, you will be a blessing to the nations. And we're evidence of that sitting right here because almost all of us are Gentiles, not Jewish people. And so God has fulfilled his promise. Then we went from there to being redemptive, living lives that are redemptive because we have been redeemed. So because God redeemed us and gave us life, we live a life out in the culture and the world in which God places us that is redemptive for others. It, It helps others understand what it means to find that freedom. There we talked about that the idea of a redeemer is someone who's personal, someone who comes alongside and pays off our debt, someone who comes alongside and rescues us when we're in trouble. And that's one of the roles that we have as a church. And then last week we talked about what it means to represent this one true living God to the world around us in our very lives. So today we're going to look at what does it mean to be a witness to this living God, to the Lord. The uh, starting point on this discussion is actually our mission statement, which is etched in glass up there. and It's on our website and many other places. Behind our mission statement is the uh, belief that we have this unshakable determination that God not only can be known, but he desires to be known. God wants to be known. He wants us to know him. He wants all of our friends and neighbors to know him. You've heard me say 
more than once that when I come across somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, um, there's a couple of things that I know right off the bat. Number one, the, that God loves them far more deeply than I do. And number two, he's been involved in their lives much longer than I have. And, um, and so I just become part of that journey, part of their journey, so that they get a chance to grasp who he is, see him in action, hear the words that describe him, all of those things. And so we, have, we serve a God who wants to be known, and he can be known. He has revealed himself. The gospel that we share, this good news, hopefully by now you're, you're kind of uh, taking apart this idea that the gospel is only that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Granted, that is the core, and that's kind of the climax of it, but it's far bigger than that. It's used for, uh, it's translated in the New Testament for the word healing. When people are healed, that's the word to be saved. To be rescued, that's the word to be saved. It's a very big term. We talked about that in our basic theology class on Wednesday night. And so this gospel, this big news that God has not forgotten us, he's come back for us, is real important. It's real important to us, but it's based on real historical events. And that's important to remember. God's plan is not that we take a leap of faith blindly into the dark corner. It's just the opposite. He engages with us on a regular basis so that we can make sense of it. He involves himself in our world. The gospel, the good news, is about real events. And it's true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to look at a, uh, a section out of the Old Testament and a section out of the New Testament. If you want to get your Bibles and follow along, there's Bibles in the pew. <coughs> I know that um, you have uh, tablets, smartphones, you can get access to a Bible anywhere you want here. So go to Deuteronomy 4, pull up uh, Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy is the last of the first five books, what we call the Torah, the Law, or, or the Pentateuch, five books. And um, they're pretty much done with the wanderings now, and they're about to enter the Promised Land. They're standing on the uh, banks of the river, and Moses is giving him the, their last, his last words. He's reminding him of a lot of things. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is before they cross over. Moses is not going to cross over with them because of his, his um, striking the rock instead of speaking to it. God said, because of that, you will not enter the promised land. So he's giving him his last thoughts, his last words. He's reminding them of things. He repeats the law found in Deuteronomy the second time at the end of their time. And so he gives them all this information. So in this context, he says some very interesting things. He wants to remind them of something. Look with me in verse, chapter 4, verse 3. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord, and see the word Lord is all capitalized in your Bibles. Probably every single Bible out there has it that way. This is referring to the one true living God. This is his divine name. This is his personal name. So this one true God, you saw what he did at Baal Peor. Baal was uh, one of the major male gods of the Canaanite religion. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed this Baal, who is from Peor. Uh, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. So he reminds them, remember what happened? And then look what he says, jump over to verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. All right, when we, when we did our Sunday on creation care, and our responsibility, we talked there and also in the basic theology class that, that creation in the Bible is a very important part. 
It's the beginning of the evidence that God exists. So everywhere we look in the Bible, they start with creation. Most of the church creeds and councils and the early church fathers began their statements of faith with creation. In fact, you might go to the website and refresh yourself by reading our statement of faith. We begin with the creation. In our world today, it's very popular to either set the creation aside or we may get to it as a tail end. But, but in biblical theology, the creation is paramount because it's the first evidence that we serve the one true God. This didn't happen by accident. It just didn't. This is an evidence that God exists. So this is where he starts. From the day God created human beings on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? Now remember, they're at the end of the 40 years. The exodus is complete. The wanderings are over. They're just a breath away from entering the promised land. Finally, they get to realize this great promise of God. Has anything like it ever been heard of? Absolutely not. Verse 33, has any, people, any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds? like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? This is verifiable. They saw it. They experienced it. You were shown these things so that you might know. There you go. This is how God moves in our life. This is how he lives with us. We experience his presence. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God besides him, there is no other. Aren't those great words? We should have absolute conviction that we serve the one true God. Doesn't mean we don't doubt. You've heard me say my position is that you can't doubt if you never believe. So doubting is just part of it. But we should grow in that deep conviction that the God that we serve is alive and well and he is the one true God. What God did is unprecedented in history here. This stands alone. The Exodus was the greatest undeniable experience of all for Israel. They could always look back. They told their children about it. They remembered. It's just an amazing event. This text appeals to the facts, to publicly witnessed experiences, to undeniable events as the basis for what it means to witness to God. <coughs> you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. That's the beginning point. You have to believe. But then in the New Testament, we find a similar passage. Turn with me to Acts 4. Again, a passage well known to you. This is Acts 4, soon after Jesus had ascended. In Acts 3, you may remember, Peter and John were going into the temple, into the gate called Beautiful, and there, behold, was a lame man who's a beggar. He's begging. It's very common in uh, third world countries, when you go to any of the temples, you find the beggars sitting outside. Um, doesn't matter what religion, that's what you'll find. What's surprising about this passage is that 
um, the temple was conceived of as God's household. In the Old Testament, this is where God dwelt. This is in the early part of the church. They're just beginning to figure out that we are the spiritual temple of God and God dwells with us now. But this, this temple standing there on the hill reminded everybody that God, the one true God of Israel, was the center of their life. And so the last thing you would expect is to find a beggar sitting at the temple. The heart of the law was to care for widows and orphans, those who are marginalized, those who are in need. The poor person could come to the temple, supposed to be, and have their needs met. And here we have a beggar sitting right here. And we just kind of gloss over that, but that's a very significant event that they walk in. There should be no beggar there. I could see it a thousand miles away, but not on God's front steps. And yet that's what they find. So they heal this man. Of course, they get drugged before the authorities, and that's kind of the context. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 8. So Peter, they're still standing before the leadership of Israel. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel know this for sure. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Gave credit where credit's due. Jesus is, and he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, I want you to understand the impact of these words on the people standing there. If you go all the way back to, uh, and I'll just read this to you, it's Isaiah 45. They were familiar with these theological concepts. In, in Isaiah 45, verse 21, declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So they were familiar. They were familiar with this concept and they would not have been surprised if he had said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than God or Yahweh. But that's not what he says. Jesus. Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. So the shock and offense of what Peter said was that he was talking about Jesus. He takes the truths of the Old Testament and applies it to Jesus. They figured it out. So when they saw Jesus doing the things that were reserved for God alone, he forgave sin. Only God can forgive sin. That's why the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. He healed people. He did it on the Sabbath and said, isn't that what the Sabbath is made for? Doing good. He uh, saves people, he redeems people, he atones for their sin. All of these things that are reserved for God alone. When they recognized that Jesus was doing the actions that, that were reserved for God, the leadership tried to kill him and eventually did, but his followers said, oh my. And when they looked backwards at the Old Testament, they did it through the lens of the cross. 
what we call a Christological interpretation, they began to see that all of this stuff in the Old Testament was talking to them about Jesus, God incarnate. So Peter applies the truths about the one true God, Yahweh, to Jesus. No wonder they got upset. It was, it was offensive to them. It was uh, shocking to them. Jesus. Yeah. In fact, uh, often they'll refer to it as Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. Okay? That's his title, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. Um, uh, Messiah is a form of the Hebrew word, which means the anointed one, the one that God is looking for. They were looking forward to coming. So he is Jesus. We have seen Jesus. And that's what he says right here in verse 11. Jesus is the stone that you rejected. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So his name is Jesus, and he is the Messiah. And that was the, that's what they're explaining here. Look what happens in verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you? Or to him, I love this, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Their testimony is based on their experience. You see it? It's based on their experience. Their theology got worked out over time. They had a lot of discussion, I'm guessing. Church councils, they wrestled with some of this stuff for several hundred years. Their theology, understanding it, got worked out over time. But they, they're, they're witnessing, they're testifying about the truth of God and Jesus was based on their experience. These two passages, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they reveal the uniqueness of Yahweh, the one true God, and Jesus as he's found in the New Testament. This is the foundation for what it means to be witnesses to the power of the living God. So... What does it mean to be a witness? Well, let's first of all go back and lay some foundation. So we're going to go back into Isaiah, Isaiah 43. So if you want to follow along, turn back to Isaiah 43. <coughs> One of the things I've tried to do throughout this series is to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New because all these ideas that are, that are laid out in the Old Testament find their expression, their fulfillment in the New Testament. You've heard me say that perhaps a good way to look at it is the Old Testament is like God's picture book. It provides a tangible picture, a tangible reality. You can touch the stones of the temple. You can smell the animals as they're being sacrificed. So that when we get to the New Testament and God decides to explain to us what does true spiritual reality look like, he can do that by going back. We can do that by going back into the Old Testament and making sense of the images and the language that's used. So we're going to go back into Isaiah 43 to capture this idea of who these witnesses are. Now, in Isaiah 43, what you've got to remember is that the first 40 chapters of Isaiah uh, are him rebuking the leadership of Israel. That's the, reason, there's a, that's the reason that they have been deported to Babylon is because they have lived a sinful life, rejected the one true God, disobeyed him, and wounded and took advantage of the people. So they're paying a big price for that. All right. So in verse 43, you would think, in chapter 43, you would think by the end of chapter 40 
that uh, there's a problem. Israel is defeated. They're now deported. They're a defeated people group. And therefore, in accordance with the times of that day and the culture, their God is also defeated. He's a failure. Because if he was truly God, and if he was more powerful than the Babylonian gods, they wouldn't have been deported. See how that works? So therefore, the fact that they're now deported says that, yeah, your God's a failure. And uh, we can gloat in our God. But Isaiah says, hold on a second. Not so. Verse chapter 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Aren't those good words? I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You're safe. You're protected. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Those are words that apply to Jesus. Remember that at Christmas? I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sabah for your, in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give nations in exchange for you and peoples in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. So that's kind of the opening statement. But he had just said um, in chapter 42 a very interesting thing. Look in verse 18. This is how he defines Israel. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. That's how he describes Israel. So he just finished telling them, you've been deported because of your sinful rebellion. You're deaf, you're blind, you don't listen, you don't see, but I have a plan. And then look, how, look what that plan looks like. It starts in verse 8. So we're going to read verse 8 through 13 of chapter 43. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf, who is it? Who's he talking about? Israel, right? Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of the gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them, these gods, let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, well, what the other gods are saying is true. So he's taunting these other gods. Let them bring their witnesses you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Let me say it a different way. You blind and deaf, obstinate, rebellious people are my witnesses. <laughs> Take heart. <laughs> and my servant, you are my servant whom I have chosen so that, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There's all caps. I am this one true God. And apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. 
I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses. Second time he says it, declares the Lord that I am God. You deaf, blind, obstinate, rebellious, troublesome people. You are my witnesses. Verse 13, yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? It's an amazing passage. God had just said Israel was deaf and blind, and now he invites these deaf and blind people to come forth. Why? As a witness. <laughs> it's amazing. As a witness. This great assembly in verse 9 is pictured as a courtroom scene. The other gods are invited to produce their witnesses. Surely you have them. No one shows up. God's witnesses are the deaf and the blind. The Lord reminds everyone that there is no Savior apart from Him. Verse 11. I, even I, I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. Those are great words. So what does it mean to be a witness? It begins with the confidence that the God that we serve is the one true living God. That's where it starts. It's not hypothetical. We didn't make it up. He is the one true living God who exerts his power in ways that make sense to us, who communicates to us in ways that we can understand who moves about in our lives in ways that we can detect his presence and see it. He is alive. He is real. So at the very core of being a witness, it involves establishing the truth. And what is this truth? He just said it. Verse 10, I am he. Verse 12, I am God. He is eternal and there is no other God before him, nor one to come after him. He is the one true living God. But not only that, he is alone in sovereign control of history. No other God had interpreted the past or foretold the future, according to verse 9. He's alone in charge of it. The story that we find ourselves in is God's story. It's his story. And it's his story alone. We get to share. We talk about having a mission. We talk about being the people of God's mission. But the truth is, it is not that God has a mission for the church. It's the opposite. God has a church for his mission. We get to participate and share in that. He alone is the Savior. And the greatest paradox of all is that he entrusts these fantastic cosmic truths about all of his creation. He entrusts it into the mouths of human witnesses who were themselves untrustworthy, deaf, and blind. That's us. Isn't that the most amazing story? Do you find a more fanciful story than this? If we'd given each of you the opportunity to define what redemptive history looked like, would you have come up with this? If we put together the best committee the church could produce, would we have come up anywhere near this? No. It's a paradox. Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. It's an amazing thing that he uses you. You should be encouraged. We get to participate with God in a wonderful thing. 
Jesus' last words in Acts 1.8, just before he ascends, there were a story that's words that are familiar to you. Look at what he says. Just before his ascension, Acts 1.8. <coughs> you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. There it is, my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are Jesus' words. So the New Testament develops this Old Testament theme of God's people as his witnesses. And it does it in two ways. What does it mean to be a witness? This is not about sharing the four spiritual laws. That's a little tiny piece of it. It may work in the environment that you're in. Honestly, most of the time it won't. Here's what it means. Number one, it means testifying to the historical Jesus. We believe he's alive and well and walked the earth. We believe it. It's not a myth. It's not a myth. Don't listen to the Jesus seminar. Don't listen to uh, PBS and all the others. He's real. He's historical. In, G in, Luke, uh, in Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, he says, you are witnesses of these things. So we have to testify to the historical Jesus. The problem is, is that we didn't live with the historical Jesus. But we have the eyewitness accounts of many people where did this eyewitness testimony end up? Where? I saw a bunch of people. That's right, the Bible. This is the eyewitness testimony of all those people. They wrote it down for our benefit. Now, this means that our witnessing is founded on the Bible. Therefore, it's critical that we have confidence in the Bible. I've devoted my life to studying this Bible. I have complete confidence in it. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. You can depend on it. You might uh, go back again and read our doctrinal statement. I mentioned it earlier for creation, where it comes up. Read the section on the Bible. That's why we put such strong words, our forefathers did, on this book is trustworthy. If we can't trust the Bible, then our witnessing is based on nothing. We bear witness to the truth of the historical Lord Jesus Christ, and that eyewitness testimony is captured right here. But that's only one of the things that we testify to. The second thing we testify to is the ongoing truth of the gospel. This is where your life comes into play because you have experienced the risen Lord Jesus. Haven't you? Romans 8, his spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. You've tasted it. You've met him. Nobody can tell you otherwise. Am I right? You have seen his power, every one of you. You have experienced peace and grace, maybe only fleeting from time to time, but you've still tasted it. So the ongoing truth of the gospel is found in your life, your lives, and us as a church. That was what happened with the Samaritan woman in, in John 4. She went back to the town people and she said, I just met a man who told me everything about my life. This can't be the Messiah, can it? That represents you. Your lives testify to the ongoing truth of the gospel. So this is what we, this is what happens when we feel the presence of Christ. This is why we end our service, and we're about to do this in just a moment, with a time of response. Offering. Today we're going to take a regular offering and a benevolence offering. Communion, prayer time. Because this is your chance to, to 
interact with what you've just learned, to act out on the presence of the Spirit, to enjoy fellowship with one another. This is not pretend. When we celebrate communion together, we are testifying to the historical fact that Jesus died for us, that God did not forget us, that he rescued us. That's what that means. This is not emotion that we go through. It's not a rite. It's not a ceremonial practice. We are testifying to this one true God, that he, is at, he has done what he said he was going to do. He didn't forget us. So I'll leave you with this question. Are we credible witnesses? I understand that every one of us messes up. I mess up. But overall, when he put us all together, are we credible witnesses? Paul talks in the Corinthian epistles about when unbelievers come into the church. My prayer is that God would bring people who don't know Jesus into our midst and they get to watch. When they see us worshiping, do they look and say, those people really believe? Huh. When they see us collecting an offering and they see us helping the poor, helping one another, do they say, those people really believe. Their faith is genuine. Look how generous they are. When they see us come together to receive communion, do they say, I wish I had something that was a conviction held that deep. I don't even know who this God is. That's the reason we do this. We testify. We are a witness to the one true God. That's what we do. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. As we have said many times, we'll continue to say, we're so grateful for you. You see, Mark and I, when we get up here, we have confidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and active. We don't doubt it. It's very real. We've based our whole lives, our livelihood on it. We believe he's alive and real. So he tells you what to do. He tells you what kind of money to give, how much to write in a check. That's really up to you guys. And I just want to say how grateful we are that you take care of us. Thank you. You give us the means as a church to have this wonderful testimony. Today is also the, the offering that's going to get passed is our offering that we do every Sunday, which makes church possible. All the things that we do to minister to people, it makes it possible. Once a month, we also do a benevolence offering. Um, you see over here on either side, these kind of these black receptacles, and there's two right outside on the tables out in the narthex. If God puts it on your heart to give to that, we use that money to help uh, poor people that are needy. We have a benevolence committee that decides what to do with that. And uh, thank you for both of those offerings. Thank you for being generous because you guys are. Let me pray and ask God to bless you. Father, I do pray for these people sitting right here. I do have confidence in your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless them on account of their generosity. Thank you for already working in their hearts and speaking to them about our church and our needs. We are very grateful to you. And we look to you to meet our needs. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.